0: and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan.
1: And I'm Mark. Welcome back.
0: Thank you for joining us once again guys. Um, thank you for getting in touch with us about last week's episode everybody. It was a really really horrific one wasn't it? So um, thank you for joining us again. We haven't put you off entirely with Mark's episode last week. It was just so sad. I just, it really stuck with me Mark that one.
1: It, it really stuck with me because we've had a few messages not not just about that episode but um, other random messages that I need to respond to, but for the last week, I've just literally not been able to really kind of do any podcast stuff. I think because it just massively affected me. Because uh, obviously, I you know, you do all the research, you write the script, we then record it, we might discuss it a little bit. Um, I then edit it. So I'm listening to it again. And then obviously we get messages about it. So it was just a bit all consuming. And we, we are actually due a mid season break soon, aren't we? So, Mm. um, we'll have a week off. And I'm not complaining at all because, um, you know, we, we love doing the show, but it was just last week's episode. It was just uh, like, yeah, it really, really took it out of me. It was a really, really difficult episode to, uh, to, deliver so but we've done it and um, it's Bethan's turn this week but before we get there um, as usual we would just love to thank all of our existing Patreons um, and also all of our new patrons that have joined in the last week as well.
0: Yes thank you so much everybody.
1: Absolutely so huge thanks to Victoria Burton, Kerry Canavan. Heidi Fisk, Laura Raffaella, Crystal James, and then also the following people who have signed up annually. And if you do sign up annually, you get a bit of a discount. So that's Katie Crawford and Helen Cheryl. Thank you so much to all of you. Um, and all of our existing patrons as well. If you would like to join this growing army of super fans, I suppose I would call them, um, then please head over to patreon.com slash seeing podcast. And, um, there are so many benefits to being a patron of the show. Not only are you helping us to produce the show week in, week out, and ensure that it's around for our fifteen thousand listeners, but you also get rewarded with bonus episodes. Uh, we'll have one out on Friday. Uh, we have one out every Friday. Uh, we send stickers to certain Not tiers. Not every
0: Friday, Mark. We have one out the last Friday. Oh, of for the month. fuck's
1: sake! Yeah, the last Don't Friday. Don't stop promising Not...
0: them more. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs>
1: overpromise and underdeliver. So, but we have got loads and loads of exciting stuff, mm-hmm. and we've just launched a book club as well. Um, So do check it out, do have a little look at it and if you're able to and if you want to support us that way um, then we are so so grateful but we know that so many of you support us in other ways um, through our social media so please do get in touch with us in all of the usual ways, interact with us about the show on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and of course if you are a patron then you can interact with us there as well.
0: And the other thing I always love is when um, I'm in like a big group of true crime podcasts or podcasting and then someone mentions us as a recommendation. If I spot you doing that, I'm always going to try and comment or say thank you. So that's always really amazing. So similarly to your episode last week being one that really stuck with you, I remember saying before one that really stuck with me was the Hillsborough episode. I remember when I was researching it, it was an anniversary. I feel like it was the 30 year anniversary at the time. Yeah. Um or at least it was it had happened around the time that I was then doing my research and writing and it really really stuck with me. Um so it does feel a bit odd to then kind of go back to a football pitch and do another case in a similar sort of fashion. So this week's episode has a similar theme in that the incident led to new safety standards in UK football grounds and whilst the fire that took place wasn't necessarily a crime itself the reasons it happened were down to negligence so um, our listeners may agree that a crime took place in that side of things and obviously it's a fire so it's a very Bethan sort of case but as well because I'm even though we're now seeing red, a true crime podcast not UK specifically I still keep finding myself being really drawn to the UK I don't know what that why that yeah. is.
1: i is. is. I'm exactly the same I think we only kind of opened it up beyond the UK so that we could cover some of the cases that that we really wanted to cover across the world but to be honest we are predominantly a UK true crime podcast still and I would say 90% of our cases are are in the UK but it is nice to know that we can venture outside of this country from time to time if we really want to do that.
0: Yeah I'm I'm going to Poland soon. Wow. That's going to be one of my next cases and um, one of our listeners Magda is helping me with research translations pronunciation all sorts. On Saturday the 11th of May 1985 two English football teams were preparing for a football match. It was an English league third division match between Bradford City and Lincoln City. It should have been a really great day in football history because after nine months of hard work Bradford City had been promoted upper league the match was well attended and it began in quite a celebratory manner with the home team who had just been promoted being presented with the Football League Third Division trophy. Their captain, Peter Jackson, accepted this for the team by the Football League's life president, Dick Ragg, in front of more than 11,000 fans. Never before in Football League's history had a team's achievements been so tragically overshadowed as happened on this day. There were 11,076 supporters in the ground for the match, and this was nearly double the season's average. Um, So they usually had about 6,500 fans in in the stands, and this included 3,000 fans in the ground's main stand. So not only had thousands of fans turned out on this cool, cloudy and breezy day, but in the crowd too were local dignitaries and guests from three of Bradford's twin towns, Oh why do I do this to myself? So they were from Vervier in Belgium, Monstelblack Black and Harm in Germany. I tried really hard to go and look for where they what they were and I just always give myself hard things to say, don't I? You
1: do, yeah. You you love giving yourself a hard time, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you've done a decent job there. I think you pronounced them pretty well. I don't know how they're supposed to be pronounced, but well, It, sounded as long as you pretty think it sounds pretty good to me. sounds okay, then that's Well, fine. that's all that matters, isn't it?
0: <laughs> exactly. So the stadium, which was called the Valley Parade Stadium, had been home to Bradford City Football Club for years, and it was well known for its old-fashioned design and facilities. So it included a wooden roof on the main stand, this stand had actually been officially condemned and it was due for demolition and the club had even been given warnings about a build-up of litter below the seats. Due to the club's promotion, a number of safety works expected to cost around £400,000, which is £1.2 million today, were due to be done. So, for example, they were going to put steel installed in the roof and the wooden terracing was going to be replaced with concrete. In a horrendous twist of fate, the stadium was scheduled to have its wooden terracing replaced by concrete less than 48 hours later, and the steelwork had been delivered and was being stored behind the stand, ready for work to start on the Monday. Simon Inglis, who is an authority on stadium history and architecture, wrote in Football Grounds of Britain, Just another 90 minutes and the stand would have done its stint, but instead it was to become a death trap. Isn't that just so sad?
1: So that was like basically the last game being played there before the stadium was being completely overhauled from a safety perspective. Yeah, that's um, the irony is just...
0: Yeah, really sad. Yeah. The first half of the match was described as a drab affair. And just before halftime, the score was still nil-nil. Five minutes before half time, at 3.40pm, the first sign of a fire, a glowing light, was noticed three rows from the back of Block G. And it was reported on by TV commentator John Helm. There were gaps in the seating area which had allowed rubbish to fall through, and there was a huge accumulation of paper and other bits of stuff under the stands. Somebody put their cigarette butt down to stamp it out, but it had slipped between the gaps. A really tragic thing to happen, but a complete accident. What really happened that day is never known for definite and the person has since been named and I am going to cover this later on so we will come back to this but for now it's kind of not not as important so a cigarette had fallen through the gaps it hadn't gone out instead it set that rubbish that was all underneath alight the rubbish in the paper was what had caught alight initially but then the wooden structures caught fire really easily as well shortly followed by the roofing material Spectators initially felt their feet becoming warmer. One guy was over from Australia to visit his son, noticed a small fire below them and tried to put it out with his coffee, but this did nothing, so he hurried to go find a steward and a fire extinguisher. A police officer shouted to a colleague for a fire extinguisher, but his shout was misheard and instead the fire brigade were radioed for, but actually this was a really good mistake because the fire took hold so fast. Um, it's really good that they did actually rodeo for the fire brigade straight away.
1: I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like that was a a really good twist of fate based on what, what is going to happen.
0: Exactly. So the stand's wooden roof, which was covered in layers of highly flammable roofing felt, also caught light, and burning timbers and molten materials fell from the roof onto the crowd and the seats below. Black smoke enveloped a passageway behind the stand and a corridor that many spectators were trying to escape through, as the police started to evacuate the stand, was also filled with smoke. One eyewitness, Geoffrey Mitchell, spoke to the BBC later and said, It spread like a flash. I've never seen anything like it. The smoke was choking. You could hardly breathe. Luckily, unlike in the Hillsbury tragedy that we discussed before, the stands were only separated from the pitch with a low wall, so there wasn't that risk of a crush happening there and spectators began to rush down and kind of cascade over the wall that separated the stand from the pitch. At the front of the stand, men were throwing children over the wall to try and help them escape, and most of those who escaped onto the pitch were eventually saved. There were no extinguishers in the stand's passageway for fear of vandalism, so one spectator ran to the clubhouse to find one, but was overcome by smoke and others trying to escape. Most of the exits at the back were locked or shut and there were no stewards present to open them, but seven were forced open or luckily found open by fleeing spectators. At least one exit was actually opened by people outside too, so that really helped to save lives. Geoffrey, who we spoke about before, who spoke to the BBC, also said there was panic as fans stampeded to an exit which was padlocked. Two or three burly men put their weight against it and smashed the gate open. Otherwise, I would not have been able to get out. As we find so often with fires, everything happened really fast. So I apologise for kind of flitting back, but we'll kind of go back to almost the beginning of the fire now. One of the linesmen alerted the referee to the chaos very shortly after the fire. So the match was stopped with three minutes remaining before half time. At this point, it was just four minutes before the flames were visible kind of across the whole ground and the police began to evacuate people. However, the flames grew so fast that some people were still sitting upright in their seats, covered by remnants of tarpaulin from the roof, and they just died there. That's how quickly it all kind of happened.
1: I just, for some reason, I just didn't think, because I'd not heard of this case before, I didn't think anyone was going to actually die. I thought there would just be some severe injuries, but yeah, I'm, I'm just like shocked.
0: It's really shocking, isn't it? Yeah. So some of the people had run to the back of the stand, others had gone downwards to the pitch to escape, but some people with shock or exhaustion or just fear were frozen. And footage of the accident is really awful to watch because you can see the panic and confusion amongst the spectators and also the rest of the crowd because they were unaware at first. So you see them cheering and waving to the cameras on the pitch side and then having this realisation that something was going wrong. People who'd escaped the fire quite often would then try and help other people affected. One man even clambered over burning seats to go and help another fan. Player John Hawley led fans to an exit with a police officer, but only to find that it was shut, so they had to turn around and lead everyone a different way. Bradford City's coach Terry Yorath, whose family was in the stand, was one of the people who'd run onto the pitch to help evacuate people. So he'd been watching the match from the sidelines and had thought nothing of it when a policeman asked where he could find some water, pointed him to a tap near the groundsman's hose, and then he turned his attention back to the match. But suddenly he became aware of the chaos and he rushed to help people. He helped a man whose hands were burned white. Then he said he heard a whoosh and the fire, fanned by the wind and trapped by the roof, flashed through the stand faster than anyone could run. He broke a window in the players' lounge with a chair and then jumped into the street, encouraging people to get out. And he remembers the Bradford chairman telling him that two people had died, but his reply to him was, surely that number's going to be a lot higher. Terry was really lucky to discover that his parents, his then-wife and their three children, had all got out safely. And as a bit of an aside, what is was interesting, one of his children at the time is the now television presenter, Gabby Logan. Do
1: you know what I thought? I thought it was. See, I know nothing about sport, but I was like, I wonder if that that was Gabby's dad. It's because it's Yorath, actually, not Yorath. Oh, is it? Yorath. Um, but I thought I'd let you, you know, uh, dig that Make hole. Make a fool of myself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I wondered if it was Gabby Logan, as was Yorath. Yeah.
0: No, well, I didn't know that was her first name, like her maiden name. Sorry, so there we go. Mm. Yeah,
1: interesting.
0: Someone once told me that I looked like Gabby Logan. I don't really see that. No, I, it, but... I
1: can't see that. I think, sadly, actually, I think one of her brothers died. Um, so that that's really interesting. That he he was there and they had a lucky escape. And unfortunately, I think um, I'm sure it's her. I, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure one of her brothers died.
0: Oh goodness. So one fan had put his jumper over a fellow supporter's head to extinguish flames and there were so many other examples available of people who really just went above and beyond to help their fellow man. A number of people who escaped then made their way to neighbouring homes um, where people kind of let them in and helped them, you know, let them use their phones, gave them food and somewhere to just have a sit down because they were obviously in shock and yeah, a lot of the local community really rallied to help the people. And like a number of people also made their way to a local pub. At the pub, the television was screening a world of sports, so they had live pictures from the ground. Um, And they also had a telephone there, so the crowd were kind of queuing at the phone to ring their families and let them know that they were safe. Can you imagine if you were sat at home watching the scenes, knowing your loved one was at that match, and then you get that phone call, the relief, watching the news reports roll around, and then you get... You get that phone call.
1: And just waiting for it as well, that awful feeling of um, having to wait for that phone call because I think you said it was 1985, so there were obviously no mobile phones. So yeah, it was um, very different, I guess.
0: Yeah. In the pub, they could hear the Yorkshire television commentator John Helm describing the nightmarish image of a policeman running onto the grass with his hair on fire and the heat was so fierce that he actually talked of feeling a burning, even from his gantry on the far side of the ground, and two decades on, John Helm has said he's never watched any of the footage. The match was being recorded by Yorkshire Television for their occasional regional edition of the ITV Sunday afternoon football show, The Big Match, and then just minutes later, the coverage of the fire was transmitted on World of Sport and BBC's Grandstand. So it really was, everybody was able to see what was going on almost within minutes. The fire brigade actually arrived at the ground just four minutes after they were called. What an amazing turnaround that is. I was really impressed by that. However, the fire had grown so fast that by the time they arrived, it had consumed the stand. And because supporters were still being rescued from inside, they couldn't really start fighting the fire for a while. The fire destroyed the main stand and left only burned seats, lamps and fences. Three fans were killed trying to escape through the toilets, two elderly people died in their seats, and some fans had been crushed as they tried to crawl under turnstiles to escape. There was one fan who had made his way to the pitch, but he was walking about on fire from head to foot. People smothered him to try and extinguish those flames, but he later died in hospital.
1: God, what a nightmarish scene. Even even when you talked about that policeman running onto the pitch and his hair was on fire, and I hope he went on to make some kind of recovery, but hearing about the, that old couple that were sat sat down and just kind of died in their seats and people being crushed by the turnstile. It's just such a chaotic scene, isn't it? Not just a fire ripping through and doing the damage that it does but all that normal human behaviour of desperately trying to escape that Mm -hmm. whilst whilst people weren't necessarily crushed by crowds they're they're still coming to severe harm as a result of just desperately trying to get out smashing through windows and what have you.
0: It was... Um, and it, like you said, it was just that chaos. It's really horrendous. There were some, some kind of good stories to come out of it though, if, if they can be good, you know, like positive at the end. Because so there was a guy called Stuart McCall who had been expecting to celebrate with his Bradford City colleagues about this third division championship trophy after the match, and instead he was caught up in the blaze. He got separated from his dad who was a 60-year-old former Leeds United player so frantically he was rushing around the streets by the Valley Parade ground looking for his dad and he said later that he asked a policeman if everyone got out and at that point he could even feel the fire even though he was 20 yards away and the police officer said to him those who could get out got out. It just wasn't the answer he wanted to hear so he jumped in his car and he raced home, hoping that perhaps his dad had also driven home. And as he was driving, the radio kept updating with the death toll, which just was mounting as the minutes passed. His dad wasn't at home, so then Stuart headed to the hospital, the Bradford Royal Hospital. And finally, when he got there, he did get good news. His dad was alive. He hadn't escaped entirely unharmed and had been taken to the special burns unit at Pinderfields Hospital in Wakefield. But... Andy, whilst having a badly burned head and needing skin grafts on his hands, was alive and they were both just so happy to finally be reunited. Back at the ground, the firefighters worked in the heat to put out the fire and then when it was safe to do so, the police headed in. Working till 4am the next morning, they removed any bodies that they could find and Police Superintendent Barry Osborne, Divisional Commander for the area, said many of his officers actually cried when they saw how badly people had been burned. One police officer responsible for searching the debris of the burned-out stand even found litter, which had been there for years, including a 1968 copy of the local newspaper. That's how long this rubbish had been building up.
1: Bloody hell, I mean, that's, like, nearly 20 years old.
0: Ridiculous, isn't it?
1: It's mad, and also, I guess, because all that rubbish and debris is... It's kind of below the seats and it's protected almost from the elements. So it, it's almost just going to dry out and just be so flammable with just a cigarette butt or something. It, it literally is going to all go up.
0: In the fire that Saturday in 1985, over 250 spectators had been seriously injured and 56 men, women and children died. Half of those who died were either aged under 20 or over 70. And the oldest victim was the club's former chairman, Sam Firth, who was aged 86.
1: I can't believe I didn't know about this, that I'd not heard of it. Mm.
0: Over the days that followed, Stuart took the championship trophy around local hospitals and the gesture was seen by doctors as a really positive aid to recovery for the injured, many of whom had formed then enduring friendships with the players who came and visited them in the years that followed, which I thought was really lovely. Whilst still an awful tragedy, it could have been so much worse. At the time of the disaster, many stadiums still had that primitive fencing between the stands and the pitch to prevent pitch invasions, which were rife during the 1980s. Luckily, this wasn't used at the grounds, and this lack of the fencing kept the death toll down. As I mentioned before, there wasn't this crush risk that we saw four years later at Hillsborough but this was still the worst sporting tragedy of its kind in England at the time in terms of the fatalities. Most of the spectators could escape onto the pitch, so if they had been penned in, the death toll would have inevitably been in the hundreds, if not thousands. However, the turnstiles were locked and none of the stadium staff were present to unlock them, so there was no escape route for people who fled through the normal entrances and exits.
1: That's sad, isn't it? And I—I I mean, I—I'm not a football fan, but I've seen the turnstiles that they have in football grounds. And again, I don't know exactly what they'd have looked like in the '80s, but they're not—they're not like those kind of turnstiles that you see at some of those public toilets where you have to just put like 20p in. And they're quite low at football grounds. That I think they're almost like more than body height, so they're probably two meters high. And um, they're not the kind of turnstile that you could actually just jump over if you were desperate to escape essentially
0: yeah no this is it I think this is the thing they're there with a very good purpose in that they nobody can jump to come in but yeah how do you escape
1: and also they, they serve a valid purpose because they're crowd control measures so it, it limits the the speed of the flow of people coming into the ground so it's understandable but um but yeah it would have caused major problems if people were trying to exit that way. But again, I know we talked a little bit in the Stardust Fire episode about how we would react in that situation. And of course, you don't know until you're in it. But I think I think I'm the sort of person that would probably head for the normal exit or the entrance through which I came in. I would just naturally in my brain, it would just tell Mm -hmm. me to go there so I can understand why so many people went to the normal exits or the entrance that they would have come in through, because your brain just takes you there.
0: Absolutely. And the disaster had a really long-lasting effect on fans, probably quite unsurprisingly. There were a couple that were reported on at the 20th anniversary, which I wanted to kind of highlight that I found really sad. So Christopher Hammond was 12 on the day. He said to the press on the 20th anniversary of the fire, It was easy to move on. I didn't realise how serious it was until I looked at the press coverage over the next few days. But looking back and seeing how much it really affected my dad makes me realise what we went through. His father Tony went back the following day and said, I wondered how anybody had got out alive, but I also began to feel guilty that I had got out when so many hadn't. And he had to undergo counselling and was unable to go to another game for several years. Matthew Wildman was 17 at the time and suffered from rheumatoid arthritis, which meant he needed crutches to walk. He was helped out of the stand by other fans, and he spent a period of time in hospital, and he later said, I have never known anything like it either before or since. Everybody in the city was devastated, but there was an amazing number of volunteers. I still have terrible memories of the day, but it is the humanity of those that helped us that I reflect on. And this is kind of something that always strikes me as well, is the survivors who escape without losing someone are still so badly affected mentally, even if they aren't even physically hurt. But the amazing acts of bravery and kindness from ordinary people is just incredible.
1: I I suppose almost like that maybe softens the trauma a little bit in that they saw such acts of kindness and people coming together to save people's lives, essentially. But I kind of understand, I don't because I've never been in that position, but I can understand why, why they would feel survivor's guilt because so many people perished and died and they might have seen those individuals. And I can just, yeah, I can just imagine that awful feeling of escaping from those grounds but seeing everybody else desperately trying to escape and knowing that lots of people didn't didn't make it and didn't get out and then thinking could I have done something to save people which of course you couldn't because all you can do at the time is just look after yourself and and do what comes naturally to you which is to to get the hell out of there so um, I completely understand that they they would it would just be traumatic for the rest of your life you'd be traumatized.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. In total, 28 police officers and 22 supporters who were publicly documented as having saved at least one life later received police commendations or bravery awards. So together, this 28 police officers and 22 supporters publicly named, flanked by other supporters whose names were not documented, managed to clear all but one person who had made it to the front of the stand. And isn't that just wonderful to hear? Following the events, four police officers and two spectators were awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal for their actions. So they were Police Constable David Britton, Police Constable John Richard Ingham and Chief Inspector Charles Frederick Mawson, Chief Inspector Terence Michael Slocum, Richard Gough and David Hustler. PC Peter Donald Barrett and PC David Charles Midgley, along with spectators Michael William Bland and Timothy Peter Lee, received the Queen's Commendation for Brave Conduct. So not only did people get police awards, but also some people were awarded by the actual Queen, which I thought was really amazing. And another really touching anecdote I read was that the two sides, so Bradford City and Lincoln City, actually met on the pitch for the first time after the fire in April 1989, when they arranged a benefit match in aid of the Hillsborough disaster at Valley Parade. They hadn't actually met again until that point.
1: And to think, I mean, you know, totally worthy cause, but to think that it was a another tragedy that would bring those teams together for the first time since this tragedy, it's weird.
0: Yeah, really, really poignant. The Bradford Disaster Appeal Fund was set up within 48 hours of the fire And it ultimately raised more than £3.5 for the survivors. In today's money, that's like £10.5 million. Wow. Yeah, the fund was kind of supporting people who'd survived the day's events, and it was also contributing to fund the internationally renowned Burns Unit that was then established. So this was in partnership between the University of Bradford and Bradford Royal Infirmary. It was set up by Professor David Sharp. So... This guy was an amazing plastic surgeon who received many of the victims following the fire. And during his work over the days that followed, he had to call on 10% of the UK's plastic surgeons to come and help him plan for treatment and treat the injuries of over 200 individuals. Um and they actually used a lot of um, kind of new treatments or tested treatments out and some of the things that he tested and he created are still used to this day. So there's loads of stuff to find out about Professor David Sharp. He seems like a really amazing guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, but doesn't that just show you the, the sheer scale of the injuries and and of this incident? The fact that 200 people needed plastic surgery as yeah. part of their recovery. Yeah, it's shocking.
0: The Burns Unit has now been Bradford City's official charity for well over a decade. Bradford City continues to support the Burns Unit as its official charity. So I thought that was really sweet. And hundreds of fundraising events took place, including a reunion of the 1966 World Cup final starting... What's that? Seven? Eleven. Eleven? Eleven. I was like, oh, I haven't read it before. Because there'd be be 11 players. There's 11 players, isn't it? That makes sense. Yeah, even I know this... The starting original teams of both England and West Germany had a match and it was held at Leeds United Stadium in Elland Road in July 1985. Funds were also raised from a recording of You'll Never Walk Alone from Roger and Hammerstein's musical Carousel, which reached number one in the UK singles chart. And then for the 30th anniversary of the fire, a new version of You'll Never Walk Alone was recorded. So this featured people like Dean Michael, the Chuckle Brothers, made me chuckle. Clive Jackson of Doctor and the Medics, Owen Paul, Billy Pearce, Billy Shears, Flint Bedrock, Danny Tetley and Rick Wilde. Don't know if you like any of those people, Mark, but they did a 30th anniversary version.
1: Well, I've I've only ever heard of the Chuckle Brothers. The rest of them I've never fucking heard of, so... The Chuckle
0: Brothers are definitely not singers either, are they?
1: No, no. For any of our non-UK
0: listeners, guys, you need to go and find out who the Chuckle Brothers are, and then you'll think that the British people are just very weird that we found them funny.
1: I might I might be totally wrong here as well but I really feel like Danny Tetley yep he's that pedophile that was in the X factor he's since what? been jailed what? yeah honestly we need to cover this someone got in touch about this uh, this case actually um Oh my god I uh, thank have you for getting in touch I said, but I know oh, no, for fuck's sake Beth and yeah Danny Tetley jailed for child abuse images and he was like grooming young boys and um getting them like to send a like Gary
0: Glitter kind of thing like he was in the music industry sort of thing or was it
1: well, he was just on X Factor. He was like an X Factor finalist. He reached the semi finals, Danny oh Tetley. I knew I knew the name. Yeah, he um so yeah, <laughs> there you go. Renowned pedophile Danny Tetley was uh, part of the lineup. So as as if we thought that lineup of musicians couldn't oh get any shitter, God. Bethan now throws a fucking pedo's name in there.
0: Oh dear, sorry everybody. I just took the information from news
1: reports. I know, I, let, I, I will absolutely, it's not your fault, Bethan, but fucking hell, like, they could have done a better job in terms of honouring <laughs> those, seriously though, honouring the victim's memory and trying to raise a bit more money for, for the Burns unit than having that motley crew. Fucking hell.
0: Right, well, they were trying to do something nice, Mark, let's move on.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to have to, but I think I'm definitely going to cover Danny Tetley definitely cover in an episode. Definitely cover so, yeah, I've got two now. That is fate, that is. Now so, we've we'll cover about him. him. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll, I'll kind of tell you guys exactly what he did and um, what happened to him. It's very interesting.
0: Oh, so, let's go back to 1985. In the July work began on clearing the stand. Justice Popplewell released his findings into the disaster. So, the Popplewell inquiry was chaired by Sir Oliver Popplewell. And this found that the club had been warned about the fire risk, about the rubbish accumulating under the stand had posed. The stand had already been condemned. Demolition teams were due to start work two days later, as we said before. However, there was no real precedent and it was generally accepted that this fire was just a terrible piece of misfortune. The dilapidated wooden stand had survived because the club just didn't have the money to replace it. The inquiry led to the introduction of new legislation to improve safety of UK football grounds and among the main outcomes of the inquiry were the banning of wooden grandstands in all UK sports grounds, the immediate closure of other wooden stands that were deemed unsafe and the banning of smoking in wooden stands. So straight away, anywhere was just immediately closed or banned
1: that that is really good, but I do think in this country we're like really good after the event. Yeah, exactly. So, um if you look at Grenfell, for example, that's another great example. Up until that point we were happy to have hundreds of tower blocks in this country with flammable cladding sprayed all over them, like s oh over a and then after
0: God, Mark. It's not even ten o'clock on a Sunday morning and I've had to listen to that.
1: But then, but seriously, <laughs> then I couldn't think of a better way to kind of mm-hmm. um, explain it. But, no, but it doesn't makes um,
0: you so angry now, doesn't it, to look at yeah, it now?
1: that could have happened. Grenfell could have happened several times over. And we, the people must have known that that was flammable. And the same as these football stadiums, they, this had been condemned. They obviously knew that this was an accident waiting to happen. And it took this accident to happen before something was done about it. It just really annoys me. Yeah, it annoys me that that's thirty five years ago, and we. I think we're still in the same kind of position, even though we've got better in terms of health and safety. And some would say we've taken it way too far. Uh, it just, yeah, it's still, it's still not enough.
0: Yeah, I really want to cover Grenfell on this show when when we get the results of the like the second. I don't know whether it's called like the second phase or the second part of yeah all the inquiries. But I'm really interested to just find out how like you said like how the fuck is that being used on buildings in this day and age i know and, I know. and the, the the things that happened that that horrible night and day it's just oh it's just absolutely horrendous and yeah we we're in well it's like this many years on from something like this happening at bradford city football club and yet it hasn't really made enough of an impact So it did emerge that West Yorkshire Metropolitan County Council, which was responsible for football ground and fire safety, had written to the club on the 18th of July, 1984. They had specifically warned about that main stand, saying in their letter, the timber construction is a fire hazard. And in particular, there is a build-up of combustible materials in the voids beneath the seat. A carelessly discarded cigarette could give rise to a fire risk. I mean, they've literally said it in their letter. In July 1984.
1: Yeah, that literally outlines exactly mm-hmm. what happened yeah. and what, what what happened 12 months later, yeah.
0: But the club didn't act on the warning. They didn't even reply to the letter. They told the um, inquiry and then with the subsequent sort of legal action, they kept on saying that they believed the letter referred to surface litter, not to rubbish under the stands. And they thang- they thought basically if the council really considered the fire risk a big issue... The council had the power to close the ground, which it didn't do. So it can't have been that bad. That really annoyed me.
1: But equally, I kind of understand that maybe the council should have stepped in and done something. The the football club have kind of got a point that the council have the powers to close them down based on those findings. And they've not. So how serious a risk is it if the council are, are willing to allow that risk to continue?
0: And they didn't follow up on that letter, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I get that a little bit. And the club didn't have very much money. They they had only really, because they'd been promoted, been able to start planning to do this renovation. So,
1: yeah,
0: it is. It's just awful that it took 56 lives. In July 1985, an inquest was held into the deaths. And the inquest relied on the same evidence that had been presented to the Popplewell Inquiry. The coroner, James Turnbull, recommended a death by misadventure outcome, which the jury agreed upon. So he clarified for them that a verdict of misadventure, not accidental death, would mean that the fire could have been foreseen and action could have been taken to avoid it. Later, after he retired, he did say it had crossed his mind to consider manslaughter, but he said it is very difficult to make a corporate body liable. But with the warnings they had, it was very close ultimately i thought misadventure was more appropriate and the jury came to that same conclusion so i thought that was really interesting even the coroner at the inquest was was almost saying it could be manslaughter but couldn't quite get to that point
1: yeah that it sounds like it was like he said it was really close to um being being ruled as corporate manslaughter mm-hmm. but i think it's interesting that he's essentially saying it's really difficult to bring those charges forward that's kind of not really part of his job. It's like you just need to rule what it was and then the CPS and the police would take over. So Mm -hmm. um, so it is interesting.
0: So to go back to the guy that apparently started the fire, this story is really sad. I'm really glad the police basically chose not to release his name at the time. So I don't know if you remember me talking about the Australian guy who'd come to visit and was at the match and then him or one of his sort of fellow supporters poured coffee to try and get rid of the fire. Yeah. Basically, there was, in 2015, a retired inspector, so Detective Inspector Raymond Falconer, amazing name, um, he said that the police were aware of an Australian man who had admitted to starting the fire. And then other people have said that he never admitted anything. So this is very much like the police say it's him, but his family say he never admitted it. It's quite a difficult one. Basically, Eric Bennett was visiting his nephew in Bradford, and he was over from Australia. The pair had gone to the match together, and investigators had reconstructed the area of the stand where the blaze occurred in order to kind of work out who had sat where. So detectives eventually tracked down all of the survivors, so one of whom... Um, was eric bennett falconer said that he had interviewed eric bennett and he told the bbc he said he'd been at the match he'd sat in the stand right where we knew the seat of the fire had taken place he said he smoked a cigarette dropped the cigarette onto the floor in front of him went to put his foot on it but unfortunately it dropped through what he said was a knot hole and then he continued they so him and his nephew rushed to the back of the stand got hold of some policemen." and told them what was happening, and the policeman very quickly started to evacuate the stand. But the rest, well, we know the tragic result of what happened. The truth is, he dropped a cigarette, and he was quite unequivocal about it. He dropped the cigarette that started the fire. So that was Falconer's quote. Falconer said that a decision was made at the time not to release the name of this man, and I do think this is the right thing to do, because people might have hounded him, had he been, you know, named, and had they been aware of his name. And... If this is truthful, it was a complete accident.
1: Oh t- totally I don't I don't think it was his fault at all. If you were allowed, if you were allowed to smoke, if there weren't um, dedicated places that you were supposed to extinguish your cigarette, um, the stands were made of wood, there was litter underneath them um, that had been there for nearly 20 years drying out. It was an accident waiting to happen. It wasn't his fault. I do think it's convenient that he's Australian and it's like, we'll pin the blame on him because he's not going to necessarily be in this country to have to answer to it. I don't know. It's just convenient, isn't it?
0: So Raymond Falconer said a decision was made not to do this, but the pair did give evidence at the inquiry. So they were part of the inquiry and they were part of the investigation, but they just weren't named So Eric Bennett said to the inquiry that they saw the fire break out, but they didn't initially realise how serious it was. And he said, our feet were warm. I just stood up and someone said, whether it was me, my nephew or the other lad, oh, there's a fire under there. So I said, there sure is. I'll go and get a fire extinguisher. He said he went to go fetch a policeman to put the blaze out. And the officer who first attended described it as a very minor fire. In the meantime, his nephew, Mr Brownlee, emptied about a quarter of a cup of coffee on the fire, which had no effect. Mr Brownlee told the inquiry, I felt my right leg was getting warm. I bent down and said, hell, it's warm down there. And I saw a fire about nine inches below the board. So these quotes to the BBC from Eric Falconer were for a BBC documentary about this. And it was on the 30th anniversary Eric had actually died before the documentary was made and released and his family told the BBC that he never revealed to them that he dropped the cigarette. His nephew even said that Eric had never made such an admission of starting the fire. So it's quite hard to to kind of know for definite. I do think that potentially he was an easy person to pin this on because he's not going to get into trouble for anything. It is still an absolute accident, but it is easier because he's gone back to Australia.
1: And then maybe he didn't want to admit it to anybody because it's it still carries a lot of guilt, doesn't it? Yeah, it would have haunted him. And also it was a bit different back then. You didn't have the internet, so you wouldn't really know what was happening in another country much. So this might have made the headlines in Australia initially, but it it probably literally was just not covered. So he would have almost, I'm not saying got away with it, because I don't think he was responsible even no, if but I know what you mean, that- yeah.
0: He wouldn't have been hounded as he may no. have been if he'd lived down the road in Bradford. Yeah. So, Mr. Brownlee, the nephew, has kind of said, I don't believe the statement of Falconer at all. I don't know where Falconer is getting this cock and bull story from. The inaccuracies in this report are dumbfounding. Um, and it's really important to note that Eric was never officially named or charged with anything. And in his reports of the things that he'd said, he said he'd spotted this fire. So... It is really hard. And then the other thing that I thought was quite interesting was Raymond Falconer's reliability had previously been questioned by Daniel Taylor in The Guardian. So the quote from him was, the Bradford Telegraph and Argus described him as a top detective. He was actually one of the detectives involved in the gravest miscarriages of justice in this country, the murder of Carol Wilkinson in Bradford, where someone was locked up for 20 years for a murder he didn't commit. So I thought that was a really interesting angle that potentially Roman Falconer wasn't as as good as people thought he was.
1: I don't know. I I think that's a little bit unfair because I don't think any police detective throughout their whole career is going to not make a mistake and it's not always just down to them it can be down to no, I totally all of their agree colleagues as well. So what yeah, I don't think it's fair to kind of say, well, he kind of fucked up on one case before, so he's not a top detective, he's not reliable, he just made a mistake like we can all do in our careers.
0: Or maybe he did twice.
1: True. Who yeah. knows? But, Could be.
0: But yeah, I thought it was really important to kind of talk about Eric's story because quite often when you look into this fire and this tragedy, he's named um, sometimes quite viciously in the media as being someone who just did it. He did it he put his cigarette down the hole like it, it is a bit harsh and I, I really wanted to make clear that maybe he did but even if he did it was an accident but potentially he wasn't the cause of the fire
1: I was going to say yeah maybe he did but maybe he didn't and maybe he was the one that alerted uh, the police sooner rather than later and, and maybe ended up saving some lives because of that that speed it's he a difficult knows. one I would say, personally, I would say he probably did drop that cigarette, but he did the right thing by um, owning up at the time and alerting the police to it. Mm -hmm.
0: Either way, a really, really tragic accident. And then this BBC documentary was then shown the day after the 30th anniversary of the tragedy. So a commemorative service was taking place at Bradford Centenary Square to pay tribute to those that died. So at this service, more than a 1,000 people including the victims' families gathered in the square, many of whom wore claret and amber colours, which are the colours of Bradford City, and the names of all 56 people who died were read out as the City Hall clock chimed out. There were some private cases brought against the club following the inquiry and inquest. So in 1986, David Britton, a police sergeant serving on the day, and Susan Fletcher, who had lost her husband, John, and 11-year-old son, Andrew john's brother peter and his father edmund in the fire i mean christ four of the family um those two brought a case against the club so this was called like a test case and it was the the main i guess the one with the most gravitas to see if it was going to be worth the legal side of things to then bring all of the cases to trial if that makes sense on the twenty third of February nineteen eighty seven, Sir Joseph Cantley found the club two thirds responsible, and the county council, which by this time had been abolished, one third responsible. So this decision was explained as West Yorkshire Metropolitan Borough Council was found to have failed in its duty under the Fire Precautions Act nineteen seventy one. But during the kind of the case to the court, and the judge said. The club kind of gave no or very little thought to fire precautions despite those repeated warnings. So that's why it was the club was two-thirds and the council one-third responsible. So the outcome of this test case actually resulted in over 154 claims being addressed. So these were 110 civilians and 44 police officers. Um, They were all injured or bereaved people. At the close of the case, the judge said they, the club, were at fault. No one in authority seemed to have appreciated the fire hazard. No one gave it the attention it ought to have received. The fact is no one person was concerned with the safety of the premises. So the judge did say he thought it would be unfair that basically the people in charge, so there was the board of directors or any of the club's owners, that side of things, that they were intentionally or callously indifferent to the safety of the spectators. He said that that wasn't the case. They weren't intentionally not caring. But he said they were at fault, but the fault was that no one in authority seems to have ever properly appreciated the real gravity of this fire hazard, and consequently no one gave it the attention it certainly ought to have received. There was a large number of compensation payments reported to be paid out. So the payments were covered by the club's insurance. So the 154 claimants were awarded compensation, totalling around £20 million. And that, Mark, is the story of the Bradford City fire.
1: One of your absolute specials fire. You just obsessed with it. but
0: I think I'm a pyromaniac, aren't I? Sorry. I, th- I think
1: you are, but... Um... Yeah, just so sad, isn't it, that so many people were injured and died and people that actually escaped from, from the grounds would be mentally scarred for life by the things that they've seen in survivor guilt. So um it's great that there were changes, positive changes off the back of this, but it really shouldn't have taken this tragedy for those changes to come into effect. And like I've said, I just feel that we're still in that place today. We almost wait for these tragedies to happen and then we do something about it. And that's a shame that we're 35 years on and we're still seeing national tragedies that then necessitate broad changes to happen. And we kind of look at it and go, well, that's weird. Why didn't we kind of think that that cladding on that building was going to be really flammable and an accident waiting to happen? So yeah, it's, it's really riles me up, but it's, um, it's such a sad case and we, we absolutely want to remember the victims and, and their loved ones.
0: It really is and I that's what I always find with these sorts of cases. It's just we need to do better for their memory. Well, there we go. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and for joining us again this week.
1: Yeah, don't forget to check out our show sponsors. So you've got beer52.com slash red. And also download the Best Fiends game from the Apple App Store or Google Play and join us on our Best Fiends journey. Uh, our kind of levels are well into the hundreds now, so um, get on the bandwagon if you've not done so already. And don't forget, if you're able to and if you want to uh, support us on Patreon, then please do. It makes a huge difference to us and to the show as well. So you can check us out at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast.
0: Well, until next time.